Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, May the 2nd, 2012, and I have an interesting show for you today. Uh, I always talk about community and building community, but I get enough emails and questions, and I'll feature one for you today, that I'm not sure if the guy was serious or just trying to maybe provoke a response like it's going to happen today, but I can tell you that I get enough emails in this vein that there is a large contention of people out there that think this way. What I want to talk about today is not just why it's important to have community, build community, uh, foster relationships within your neighborhood, be the solution instead of the problem. I'm just going to you know, figure that maybe I'll just turn this thing around. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it seems to me that there's a contention of people out there that believe that being community-oriented, sharing with people, helping people during disasters is not the way to go. It's better to be a lone wolf. So instead of trying to convince them that my way works, what I'm going to do today is tell you 10 really good reasons why being the lone wolf or the small group of kind of raider-type people or just like the, the hunkered-down camp of four or five people uh, that's going to be you know completely isolationist won't work for 99% or more of disasters. Not, not that th there's a better way, that your way just will not work and how it will fail. And I think it's important that we look at that, and maybe it's an angle we've never really discussed before other than in passing. I'm going to go into it in depth today. Uh, and when you hear the when you hear the email, some of you are going to have the same response that my wife did. I think especially women out there, uh, when you hear the the email, you're going to do what my wife did. I'll tell you what she did after I read the email, and then I want all of I want all the ladies in the audience that did the exact same thing, the first response to comment today and go, "Yep, that's what I did." All right, uh, but I'm going to hold that till I get into the main subject. First up, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. You know, if you want to build knives and you've never built a knife before, but you know how to use like basic handles and stuff like that, you can go there and get to what, you know, what truly is a kit. And if you're not sure what to do with the kit, you can even get a video or a book, and that'll show you how to complete the project. And you can build something really customized because... You select your own handle materials, maybe your own bolsters and things like that, do the final form and fitting, and get started. If you're a master bladesmith that says, I just want some domestic steel or some uh, D2, uh, D2 steel or something like that, or some exotic handle material like mammoth tusk or giraffe horn. Uh, I think they have giraffe horn. Don't, don't, I'm not sure on that one. I really think I saw that there, though. Uh, but many other things like buffalo horn. You can get those raw materials there. And remember, if you're a member, Support Brigade member, they give you an additional 5% off of everything that they sell. So check them out today, knifekits.com, for the master bladesmith and a novice new person alike that wants to get into making knives. Uh, next up today, I want to remind you about Sawtooth Tactical, veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and where are they at? They're in the Sawtooth Wilderness. That's why they're called Sawtooth Tactical. And they have all the things that you could possibly want to live that tactical lifestyle from uh, Maxpedition... Uh, 
From SOE Tactical Gear to Magpul Magazines to the Titanium Tactical Spork, you name it, everything you can think of to be tactical, you will find at SawtoothTactical.com. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, yesterday I said I was looking for a mount for my iPod, my iPhone camera that would let me use the camera a little bit more engaging. I found something really cool called the Swivel. And uh, I just ordered one. When it gets in, I'll let you guys know what I what I think about it. But I'll put a link in today's show notes for anybody that's out there that wants to do videos. This thing, basically, you set your phone in it, and it follows you, and it has a wireless mic that you pin on yourself. It seems really cool. Somebody had told me about it last year when they weren't available yet. Right after I finished the show yesterday, I thought maybe I'd check one out. If that thing works the way that it says it works, you guys are going to get a couple, three videos a week for me minimum on YouTube. So now's the time to subscribe to the channel. I think it's like having a, a cameraman that, that's ready whenever I am and no editing required because if you don't like where I screw up, tough. That's how the videos are going to be. I want quantity over quality. I, and I say quality of production. I want quality in what I'm doing, but quantity as well because that's what you guys deserve. So. Uh, that will be coming soon. Uh, also, remember, you can check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions that we make available that are also AOCS uh, currency in the AOCS marketplace. Uh, they sell for about $34-ish for a roll of 20. Some really cool stuff. Ron Paul, Rand Paul, of course, the TSP medallions, the Honeypot medallions, the Bitcoin, the representation of the electronic Bitcoin, all kinds of cool stuff. Great ways to just have a cool collection, have some really beautiful stuff, share the message. They're so inexpensive, you can afford to give them away to promote causes and things like that. And again, they are AOCS currency in the AOCS barter network, primarily used to make change for barter transactions done in silver and or gold. Next up, remember, uh, if you really want to support this show, the best way you can do that is join the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you'll get some exclusive content available only to members, like almost $200 worth of free ebooks the day you sign up. Yes, they're all free. Yes, you can download them. Yes, you can put them on your Kindle. Yes, you can print them out. Yes, you can. Yes, right? They're just there. Uh, you get discounts to over 32 vendors, and I'm working on some really cool ones right now. A couple people that I really want to bring on, but they're just not getting the way to do it right for you, so I'm trying to work with them and put together a program that will make it simple and easy for you to just go to their site and get a freaking discount instead of them trying to this. But we'll put this one item on special. I, I, I don't want to do that with MSB. I want MSB to be you go to their site, and you can get certain things or everything with a certain discount or get free shipping, simple, easy to understand, so I'm working hard at building that up. And then you're supporting the show at 18.37 an episode, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and other first responders, please email me before you join with service discount in the subject line, and just tell me who you are and what you did, if you're prior service, or who you are and what you're doing, if you're active service, just a sentence or two, that's all I really need, I don't need a paragraph or a whole resume or anything like that, or a photocopied ID card, don't need that stuff, just tell me who you are and what you're doing, I trust you on your honor, and if you're doing that stuff, I will give you a special discount code to thank you for your service before you join And that discount does apply to recurring memberships as well. So with that wrapped up, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Now remember, ladies in particular, listen carefully right now. I know a lot of people garden and do other things while you're listening, but if you could give me 25 seconds here to read this and then tell you the first thing my wife did, I'm just interested to know how many people, but really how many ladies did the same thing. Here was the email, honest to God, this is how it read. Jack, I grew way too many potatoes this year and have over 100 pounds more than I can use. I thought about selling them at the farmer's market, but that might make me a maggot when the shit hits the fan. 
a mag a magnet. I'm sorry, a magnet when the shit hits the fan. Uh, I thought about the neighbors, but that giving them to the neighbors, but that may be even worse than attracting people if there's a disaster. And I thought about donating to a church or food bank, but again, that might make me a magnet when the shit hits the fan. What should I do with all these extra potatoes? Okay, first thing my wife did: rolled her eyes, rolled her eyes the way only a woman can. I love her for that. Um, just a big old. Then she sighed with an audible female, and Lynn laughed a little laugh. Okay, and that's that's as much as I want to know. What did what did you ladies out there that heard that, especially longtime listeners, do when you heard that? Uh, the next thing she did was say. Is he serious? My response was, I, I think so. I mean, I get some of these that are kind of pulling my leg once in a while. This one seems serious. And I get stuff like this all the time. Then she stated, well, if that if he's that paranoid, just donate them anonymously. She's like, I take a bunch of vegetables and stuff every once in a while and extra canned goods that reach expiration date that we don't use down to this thing called the master's table in town where they give it out. They never ask my name or, you know, anything like that. They give me a blank receipt to fill out myself and I just walk away. So I don't think that really would attract anybody and figure out where we're at from I just going and dropping a box of stuff off. And uh, then she said, well, has he been listening to you at all? And I felt really good. I mean, we were sitting, I was driving the truck. We were actually heading out to the compost facility when I told her about that. We might have been actually heading back. But when she reacted that way, I'm like, you know, I've really reached my own wife. By the way, she might be on the air with me tomorrow with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. I'm trying to talk her into it. Hopefully she will be. But I think there's two bigger points here. Number one was because she wasn't encumbered by the paranoia. Well, what do I do? What do I do if somebody finds out? Her, she found a solution in about 30 seconds. Donate anonymously. Just take it to a church. You know, even if you're that worried, go across town and, and just go to a church that takes food donations and just go here. And when they say, well, you know, do you want to receive anything? She's going, no, nah, it's it's just. I'm just doing it anonymously and, and I mean seriously, right? So she found a solution like that because she wasn't encumbered by paranoia, but she also at once saw the folly in the paranoia, how ridiculous it was expressed. Again, is only, I mean, I've seen men roll their eyes. I'm sure I've rolled my eyes, especially as a teenage kid, but, but men cannot pull the eye roll off the way that a woman, woman can, and it said everything. Like, is this guy, I mean, you know, the, the whole thing that happened, uh, you know, a couple statements later of, is he serious, was, was stated right there. And... Again, I get a lot of emails from people, and I'm not picking on this guy, because again, he might have been pulling my leg for all I know, but again, I get a lot of emails that are of this bent, right? And whenever I do a show about community and sharing and talking to others like I did last week, I always get people saying, but then they'll know, right? Then they'll come. Then they'll come take from you. And... That tells me that I haven't done a good enough job at explaining why it's actually more important to be somewhat open. Because I'm going to close the show with some rules for general OPSEC or operational security for preppers. Because there is a legitimate concern there. But we've gone from the legitimate concern to the illegitimate, irrational level of paranoia that really is the antithesis of survivalism. Because as a survivalist... If I know that there's a 99% chance that something is the best idea and a 1% chance that it's the wrong idea, as a survivalist, I go with the 99% play. If you came to me and I was a doctor and I said I have two treatments for you, one has a 99% cure rate for the condition you have and you won't die. The other one has a 1% cure rate. 
Now, it works every single time the 99% cure doesn't work. And it never works when the 99% cure does. You have a 1% chance of survival with treatment A. You have a 99% chance of survival with treatment B. And you're going to die if you don't do either one. Which one would you do? How long would it, as long as you believe that, how long would it take you to make that choice? Probably not long, unless there's something, maybe it's a brain tumor and it's putting pressure on a point that allows you to do math and think logically. Now, if it was 60-40, you might want to analyze deeper and go, well, let me make my own assessment on what are the ramifications of the treatment or whatever. But as long as the 99% cure isn't going to make me paralyzed from the eyeballs down or something like that, I'm probably going to go that route. So what we have to start out with is understanding that that's our goal. And if we do something that puts us in the 1% of survival opportunity or only addresses 1% of possible breakdowns and we ignore the other 99%, we're not being a good survivalist, which is not. And I, mathematically, that's almost impossible to argue with. Before I go into 10 reasons you can't go it alone or like do the tactical squad raider thing successfully, um, let's start out with some basic things that we need to understand before we evaluate that. And the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what are humans at their core? And this is not spiritual or anti-spiritual, or religious or anti-religious. So I don't want anybody to take a word I'm about to use the wrong way, because you can certainly be a creationist or a, you know, dyed-in-the-wool conservative Christian and accept the statement I'm going to make it fact, even if you don't believe in evolution. Humans at their core are social animals. That's what we are. Social animals with higher reasoning. Okay. Now, When a lot of people say animals and they're talking about disasters, they're talking about the very worst in people. I'm not. I'm talking about the way that we conduct ourselves. We conduct ourselves in groups. We conduct ourselves in tribes. We conduct ourselves in neighborhoods. We build companies that require multiple people to work, do labor, and deliver things. We have social stratification layers that are both real and imagined. Uh, we have many different ways that we align with or oppose other people. But in general, we group together. And we group together for common goals, aims, and accomplishments. And it's always been that way, and it'll always be that way. If you take a whole bunch of people that are prisoners and dump them on an island somewhere and say, fend for yourself, then later you come back and find a place like Australia right, or Georgia. Both were started as debtors' prisons, debtor colonies, where people that were in debt were basically thrown out and said, go here and, uh, and, and deal with yourself because we don't have room to keep you. Kind of a banishment thing and an opportunity at the same time. And, and if we took a couple thousand people and found an island somewhere, you know, like remember Lost, as long as there was enough food and resources for them to survive, You would come back in a few years and you'd find an entire social structure. You'd find children being born. Assuming there were children there, you'd find a school system in place of some sort. You'd find training in place where people that had various professions and knowledge were sharing and developing their knowledge. You would see a community developing. Once people accepted the fact that we're not getting off and we can make it here, you would see that develop. You might see them break into two different factions or two different groups, or set up their own neighborhoods, but there would be a collectivism going on. Because it's what we are. 
We are not so much from the political aspect, but from the natural aspect, we are collectivist beings. In other words, it's not collectivism in the socialist state model. It's collectivism in the fact that we like to be able to be together on some layer and then re retain our individuality so that we can separate out when we feel like it. So if we don't understand that that's what humans are at the beginning, we, we, we have a hard time really putting together a survival plan. And then we end up putting a survival plan together for a, a social creature and creating an isolationist system for a social creature. Doesn't work good. It makes the creature miserable, and it possibly results in the creature's ultimate demise. You got that? So that's the basics. And you can't point out a society anywhere where people only let's came together, let's say, for procreation. The woman took the child and, 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 and did her thing with raising the child so the child could walk away, and then went and did it again. In other words, you don't find human beings living like a non-social animal. Where mating occurs, the woman drops the uh, the infant, maintains the infant to a point of self-sufficiency, and leaves them leaves them to themselves. And there are many animals that work that way, but it's never happened in human history because we're not that way. We have that social bent to us, and that's why communication is considered critical even by the lone wolf. I love when I'm reading like survivalist boards or our own forum or Backwoods Home or something like that. I don't do that much anymore, but I, I did a long time ago. I did a lot of that. And you'd, you'd get to know people by their handles, right? And you realize, this is the lone wolf, uh, individualist. I'm going to be stocked up like James Resley Walls recommends. I'm going to have freaking LPOPs, even though there's only four of us. And, you know, all of these, these concepts. We're going to have razor wire that we'll roll out if we have to. I have bomb-making knowledge that I'll use if it ever comes to that. And the zombies won't get me. And then the guy wants to talk about ham radio. <laughs> and... Yeah, I mean, you could understand why they might want the information relayed in, but if you want the information relayed in, you need a shortwave receiver, not a communicating device. You don't need a transceiver, you need a receiver. So why do you want the transceiver? Because in his heart, in his soul, in his gut, he really knows. The communication is vital, and the only reason communication can be vital is because we're social creatures, and we need community, we need to be together. So if we come at it from that standpoint, we start asking ourselves, how do we put it together as a survival plan for ourselves? that accepts the fact that we're communal, that accepts the fact that we're social, that accepts the fact that as soon as something's torn down, our natural reaction is to clean it up and try to put it back together and make it better than it was before. Think about that. That's what we do. And everywhere that you've seen things destroyed, you've seen a rebuilding process go on, whether it's a neighborhood, an individual house. You know, as long as the people that initially had a stake in it were, were still around, they didn't get killed, they put it back together. And if they didn't, if they like, if somebody like got wiped out by a hurricane on, on the coast of uh, North Carolina, for instance, and they have a family meeting and they say, we, you know, this is a hurricane zone. We knew that we came here, but now the reality struck and we just, we just can't do this again. So we're going to move further inland so we don't have to deal with this and we're going to rebuild there. Well, one, they've rebuilt somewhere. Even if they just bought a house that somebody else built, they're rebuilding their lives. And two, somebody else will come in, occupy that space and rebuild. That's what we do. We put things back together. So, With that in mind, let's go into the 10 reasons that being a lone wolf or putting together your little tax squad of former Army, Army Ranger buddies or whatever is not going uh, to work for 99% of all disasters, possibly more, possibly 100%. It's definitely possible to say that it would be 100% of the time it won't work 
for any disaster in your lifetime or the lifetime of your children. That there may be somewhere, someplace, someday, that level of a breakdown that your way would work, but the odds are long that you'll live to see it. Okay. The first reason is most disasters are just not going to result in a total breakdown in the first place. It's just not what happens. Look at the stuff we've seen in the last 10 years. You know, and go a little further back. Let's go back to 9-11. Let's go back to the anthrax that was being mailed around in the mail. That, both of those could have been bigger disasters in, 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 with just a certain uh, you know, accumulation of other things. Uh, we saw the power grid go down about a year after 9-11. I was in the middle of New York City when that happened. People held themselves together remarkably well when that happened. It was unbelievable that I was sitting in Manhattan watching people conduct themselves rather well. I think that the prior impacts had set them up to be ready for it in their mind, if not with supplies. There were plenty of unprepared people from a supply side. but Most people just walked off the island and, and figured out a way to get home. Uh, or went to their houses, or went to their hotels, or what have you. And if you had cash, you could go buy a beer and sit in the street and watch everybody walk by. It was actually pretty interesting. We've seen tsunamis. We've seen earthquakes. We've seen multiple devastating earthquakes. The Haitian earthquake. We've had earthquakes in South America. We've had earthquakes in Japan that created tsunamis. We've had Hurricane Katrina. We had Hurricane Rita. We had the hurricane, I don't remember the name of the one, that strafed the East Coast last year. Uh, we had in 2011 the most uh, deadly outbreak and, and, and property damaging outbreak of tornadoes that we've ever seen in recorded history. And we're probably going to see other things. We'll probably see, instead of a fake flu pandemic, at some point we'll see a real legitimate flu pandemic. We may see like the nightmarish, you know, made-for-TV movie pandemic at some point, or made-for-Hollywood movie pandemic, but it's far more likely that we're going to see something that's serious, but not serious enough that the average person is going to end up dead. I mean, I don't think people realize how serious a pandemic would be if it had a high contagion rate and a 5% lethality rate. I mean, you're talking tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world dead with, with that type of scenario. But it doesn't create the breakdown that allows the person to just hold up, not pay your bills, not pay your mortgage, steal from your neighbor, shoot your neighbor if they try to steal from you, shoot the kid trying to take the tomato out of your backyard and get away with it. None of those scenarios, even if we go very, very extreme, allow for the person to operate in the lone wolf mode, either isolated and just staying put or going out and taking from other people. Or the troop to do it. Now, they might do it, and they might have initial success. Sooner or later, there's going to be an accounting for it, and sooner or later, there's going to be a resistance to it. And we'll get into the resistance in a bit, but I just have a message for anybody that thinks that my AR and my 2,000 rounds are my survival kit. You're not as much of a badass as you think you are. You're, you're really not. And I don't care how many tours you did overseas, and I don't care how much training you went through. We'll get into why you're not as tough as you think you are in a bit. But the next one, and this is like so critical, most people can't afford all the resources for long-term self-reliance, let alone self-sufficiency. And remember, self-reliance and self-sufficiency are two different things. Self-reliance is the ability to survive a number of days forward without support. So the easiest way to describe this is if you need lighting in your home and you have a flashlight with enough batteries to last 24 hours of use time, you have 24 hours of lighting self-reliance. 
and you don't have 25, and you don't have 26. Now, you can go more than two days because you, won't, you don't use the flashlight when the sun's shining, idiot. And you don't leave the light on when you're sleeping, idiot. And if there's a tactical scenario where you actually do have to worry about outside threats, you don't want the light on any more than you absolutely have to. But the total time that you can use lighting without power coming back on or the convenience store opening to buy more batteries is 24 hours of lighting. Very hard to know exactly what it is, but you'll know when the last battery runs out that you've reached your limitation for self-reliance. Self-sufficiency we measure more in a percentage. This is what percentage of your, your needs and wants can you fulfill without the system for the foreseeable future or forever. And forever is a big word. But, you know, a solar-powered system, you know, panels, batteries, everything brand new, professionally installed, has a life cycle, a really effective life cycle of somewhere between 20 to 25 years. And if you know what you're doing, you can milk it and still get stuff out of it for another 10 or 20 or 30 years after that, but you really don't know. But from a standpoint of a breakdown of society, 20 years is forever. In 20 years, if things aren't coming back together, you've probably decided yourself to, to put a gun in your mouth to blow the back of your head off. Let's just, just be honest about what type of world we live in and, and what we want out of it. So with that in mind, we have to look at self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Self-reliance is expensive. Self-sufficiency in some ways is extremely expensive. It's buying five or ten acres and building up a farm system or an agricultural system of some sort. It's having livestock and learning how to use them. So it's not just expensive from dollars, it's time. It's investment in time and skill development. Self-reliance is going out and buying a, a generator is a self-reliance tool. A generator that can run on biofuel with a farm that can grow sunflowers and produce oil from the sunflowers that can go in the generator and run the generator so that you can continue to produce electricity gets a lot closer to self-sufficiency than self-reliance. The generator can still break down. So we need self-reliance components built into the self-sufficiency system like spare parts and the knowledge of how to fix it when it breaks. Or maybe just another generator. A backup generator, two is one and one is none. But all, you, when you, and this is the question I get all the time. How do I do all of this? The answer is you don't. You do the things that make the most sense for you in your lifestyle and in, in your life and in your community and with your plan. Which means that the reality is that almost everybody except the ultimately independently wealthy who have built a complete compound with everything they could need for 10 years, everybody but them sooner or later is going to rely on other people, whether it's through cooperation or whether it's through barter or whether it's through theft. Those are only three ways you're going to be able to rely on somebody else. You guys are going to have to cooperate with each other and just decide we're going to do this together. I'm going to help you. You're going to help me. And that's just part of the way it is. Basic collectivism on an individual or community level. right? You're going to barter for it. I will if you will. Money still works, so here's 20 bucks. Cut the tree out of my yard for me. I don't have a chainsaw. Right? Here's a, or here's a 12-pack of beer. Both of them are barter. Understand, when we use cash, it's still barter. It's, it's one thing of value presented to another thing of value. It's just a common denominator of value. So in a short-term disaster, cash has still got value, buddy. But in a longer-term disaster, maybe cash doesn't have so much value right now. Maybe, maybe my chainsaw is not working. Maybe I need yours or need you to use yours to, to cut the trees off of my property. Maybe you don't want money because you got plenty of money, but none of the stores are open because the storm is that bad. But you'd like some beer, and here's a 12-pack of Coors Light, and maybe that is worth more than 20 bucks, even though yesterday you could have bought it for eight. 
I think Coors Light costs more than that. I don't know. I don't drink that crap. But uh, you get my point. Right? So the reality is that you're going to depend on others. No matter how prepared you think you are, you're going to be depending on others. So you either need to be depending on them through cooperation and barter or theft. And theft won't work for very long. It's, it's, it's shocking, I know, to some people. But people don't like having shit taken away from them when they've already been put into a hard situation. And they tend to react quite violently to it. The guy that there's a computer programmer or whatever that's been to the rifle range four or five times, he can still hit center of mass from 50 feet. And if you start taking his shit, he's likely to shoot you. Now, given that we live in a, a, a country where I think it was last month over 5 million guns were sold in America, in all but the most ridiculously yuppie, disarmed, stupid neighborhoods, there's probably a gun in every third or fourth house. And if people go in and start trying to take stuff by force, they're going to find out that not everybody's going to lay down and allow it. And as soon as it starts to become commonplace, then the people in these neighborhoods are going to immediately group together and start forming some level of security. And while the person committing the raids may be better than them, they're not better than all of them. And they can only get away with it for so long. So... The first thing that we have to understand is that we're going to rely on other people. So we can either start planning now to rely on them through cooperation of some form, or we can, we can accept the fact that if we deny that, that we're going to end up in a place where we're going to either be forced to take or have to then start late in the game developing cooperation. Because you don't have enough to go on your own forever. Especially in the total breakdown scenario that everybody's so afraid of, that they stay so paranoid about anybody knowing what's going on for, you really don't have enough to make it that long there. And I'm going to get an email today, we've got six of us, and we're all armed, and we know how to use our guns, and we got a bunker, and i got three LPLPs, and I was featured on Doomsday Preppers, and I've got this, and I even the expert said it. Yeah, and bullshit. In the end, started out with the fact that at their core, humans social creatures that need each other for interaction and additionally in 99% of the disasters you face it's not going to matter because it's not going to work that way the next thing is let's say it does completely break down let's say that it, it is patriots the collapse right let's say that it is everybody's destitute the power grid's down the phones are down all the store shelves are empty there's no semblance of commerce left there's nothing left Well, the person that says, my AR-15 and my 2,000 rounds are my, my survival kit, hope you plan on eating people, and you can't even do that for very long because they're going to starve to death and they're not going to be there. See, even most parasites know not to kill the host. A tapeworm is smarter than the average moron that thinks they're going to go take what they need in a disaster from other people for any semblance of time. The tapeworm knows if I kill the host that eventually I'll die too and I won't be able to you know, procreate my, my, my species. So the tapeworm takes from the individual, grows extremely large in their system, and becomes in some ways harmful but symbiotic. It, you know, A person will lose weight, feel sick, feel ill. But in general, most parasites don't even do any direct harm. Ticks might transport Lyme disease, but if they don't do that, they pretty much, or Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, I'm sure there's some other diseases, but you know, 99% of ticks, they, they get on a host, they suck their blood, they balloon up to a point, and they drop off. Because if they were to kill the host, they're going to die too. Because when the host is gone, there's nothing to live on anymore. That's why we don't have 
pandemics that kill you know 100% of the population. Any disease that has a rapid kill rate, kills very quickly, very efficiently, and kills most people, usually ends up self-containing through quarantine of death. It can't move fast. The illnesses that we have to worry about are the ones that only kill a few people out of 100. Five, six, seven out of 100. That's extremely deadly because it leaves 90% of people walking around ill to spread the disease. So the concept that the raiding party is just going to take what they need for in perpetuity is ridiculous because if things get bad enough to allow it, you're not going to have anything to prey on for very long. You got to realize you're talking about the far out there scenario, the all the way to the edge scenario, the most unlikely occurrence that we can think of. Possible, yes, probable, not likely, but in that scenario that you so fear that the guy that you gave a potato to a year ago might come to your house, you, you, you being there is going to make you, a, you existing is going to make you a target. And, and the person that thinks they'll take what they want, what are you going to take when nobody has anything? What are you going to take when no one has anything? We'll get to the solution to that in a bit. I also want people to understand something, that as soon as the smoke clears and basic order is restored in any disaster, the priorities are clean up and rebuild versus tear down and loot. That type of thing is a very short-term scenario. It only lasts for a while. Whether it's a Rodney King riot or the people looting after Hurricane Andrew, as soon as people you know, basically dust themselves off, look around and go, I'm alive, my kid's alive, my wife's alive, here's what's left of what I have, damn it, no one's taken it, and stand up and say, no more, that stuff gets suppressed very, very quickly. Now, would it go longer in downtown Chicago than in suburban Georgia? Absolutely. Would it be worse there? Absolutely. Would it be utilized by gangbangers and the like as, a, as a, an opportunity to be even worse and more vile than they usually are? Absolutely. But it still has the same series of rules. And once that suppression takes place, You know, you can watch Escape from New York and zombie movies and other stuff like that, B-movies from the 70s, all you want. That sustained breakdown just has never been the case. Even when World War II, when they were dropping bombs on cities both in, in Britain and in Germany, on both sides of it, people would have their house torn down. And as soon as the bomb sirens went away and the bombers went away, they'd come out and what do you think they did? They started picking stuff up and put it back together. Reconstruction is the heart of any disaster recovery effort, which means the person that wants to not be part of it is going to get last priority in receiving any of the benefits from it. So from a basic selfish standpoint, viewpoint, being part of the reconstruction is the best thing that you can do for yourself. Lone wolves don't get to be part of the reconstruction because they don't think about other people in advance, and they panic and they fall in on themselves when they're put into the actual scenario. They also tend to overreach and believe they've reached that point before they actually reach that point. So they hole up in a bunker when they could be outside doing something beneficial. People say to me, but, but Jack, what if all these people that you've talked about, you know, to about this stuff, and, and I'm not worried about the people I talk to on the air. If there's a disaster that's that bad, I mean, really, do you think that somebody that listens to me in Dallas or Bangor, Maine is going to come to my house here? 
I mean, in a total breakdown, what is the danger with the risk-reward ratio, right? The people that you have to have some legitimate concern about are the people right around you, in your city, in your community, and in your town. But when people say to me, well, what if people come to your house when there's a disaster? I'm like, that's awesome. They're like, what? Well, that's great. The first thing that we need to do, if there's a disaster that's going to really affect my community and my town, my area, is I need to get together a group of people with a common mindset, and I need to take leadership role there, assess the people, determine what their skills are, get them on the same sheet of paper, and get them protecting, defending, or restoring order to our area. So when they come to me, by default, they've acknowledged that I have a superior level of knowledge in that area. I'm more prepared than they are, so maybe they'll listen. Now, maybe they won't, but maybe they will. But I'm also not going to tell them, you know what, starve, I don't care. right? But when I get to the OPSEC rules, you'll see that it's not like they think that there's you know, 400 tons of beams underneath the house or anything. They know that there's some basic preparedness that's been done. Now, for me, it's a little different right? because I do this show, and anybody that really wants to can look me up and know that I'm probably more prepared than most. But I'm going to tell you the facts are, even now that we live kind of in our homestead area, If it got really bad, we probably wouldn't even be there. There's other places and other things we could do and other places we could go. If there's that level of a breakdown, there's still a bug-out plan. For most disasters, though, it's a hold-it-together, preserve-it-take-care-of-each-other plan. And I want you coming to me for that. And if I can give you a day or two's worth of food and tell you that's all I can spare... And I can earn your loyalty that way, and I can say, now look, we got to figure out how we're all going to eat next week, because it doesn't look like this is going to be fixed by next week. So here's the things that we can do. You can do this, and I can do that. And What resources do you have, and here's the resources I have, and I can start putting together an operational plan. But the fact that you're coming to me is a solution rather than a problem. See, permaculture principle, turn solutions, turn problems into solutions. The next thing that I think that the, the person with the, the, the moronic mentality of I'll take what I want is even the weakest are strong in an organized group. I mean, the, the reality is that a lot of people think that, you know, kind of an armed biker gang or whatever sci-fi, B-fiction, fan-fiction group you can put together to create a group of bad guys that when the good guys kill them, nobody feels bad for them, can just go out and start ransacking and taking and do that sustainably. But my point has always been, well, our troops have tanks and cruise missiles and aircraft carriers and close air support and supporting mortar platoons and artillery and a logistics supply line that boggles the mind what the military can put into a theater. Some of the best training the world has ever known. And they still get torn up by pissed off peasants with IUDs and AK-47s. I'm not saying that, that like those guys are, that are doing that are good guys or bad. I'm not putting judgment on anybody. I, I, today is not a day for judgment one way or the other. Today is a day for reality And you can look at the wounded warriors that return and the, the soldiers uh, that return that return in a bag and, or, or a casket in, instead of uh, by their own uh, feet or wheelchair. And you can realize that even the peasant with the AK is able to cause extreme injury, death, and destruction when pushed to a well-trained, 
well-supplied, well-armored force. Well, guess what, biker gangs? You don't get close air support and a logistical supply chain. Now, some people would point out correctly that the actions that people like that will take don't have a rule of engagement. You know, certain. It still does. The fundamental reality is that if people are pushed into that scenario, they will click, quickly organize into defensive groups, and they will quickly look at outsiders that show any form of aggression as a target. These are in the serious long-term breakdowns. And they will be very effective at repelling them. Extremely effective at repelling them. And for those that think the average person isn't prepared, in many ways they're not, but 10% of people prepared to defend what they have is a lot of people prepared to defend what they have. And it takes no time at all for people to start improvising. So if the military can't get away unscathed with all that they have going for them, in a total breakdown where there's not much left and you're preying on people that have very little, except a desire to defend themselves, you're not going to do any better. In fact, you'll probably do quite worse. In fact, a way to look at this of preying on people in a scenario like this is the truth about rabbit starvation. Every time I talk about rabbits, i got to hear, if you eat too much rabbit, you'll get too much protein and not enough fat and you'll starve and just want to just reach through the freaking computer and grab the person on the other and shake them into reality and go, stop. This is why people starved on rabbits. This is where the myth came from, the reality behind the myth. And it wasn't just rabbits. Rabbits were one thing and squirrels and any other little small creatures that they could kill. These were people who were living in the mountains in the winter during an extremely lean period of time. And the animals they were eating were also starving. So if a starving man's living on starving rabbits, sooner or later he's going to starve. And that's the raider theory. A, a starving group living on another starving group can only survive for so long. And then people say, well, there will be things that will people, you know, there'll be some resources and there are farms and there are fields and people will, well, exactly. And that leads us back to the reassembly. And as the reassembly begins, order uh, begins to be restored. As order begins to be restored, whether it's personal and private security or whether it's actual law enforcement or what have you, that element comes back. Accountability comes back. And then stealing and looting and all results in death or being hung from a tree. And, and this is the reality. Nobody's going to lay down and let people take what they have in a desperate situation. And people are more likely to cooperate and they will cooperate as long as they have some hope that things will go back together. And then the next thing we need to understand to, to, to really get this and what we're really preparing for, in all but the most extreme examples, and by most extreme examples, I mean so extreme that we've never seen it before in the history of the world, Even in war-torn Europe, there were, there were authority figures that maintained order and control. There were places where it broke down. There were places where it went crazy. There were places where people looted. There were places where people stole from each other. Yes, but a complete absence of authority, it's never sustained. And in this country, that's become a police state, I guess one of the upside is some law enforcement is going to be somewhere doing something. And sometimes they might be part of the problem, but in most cases they are part of the solution. Most guys that participate in law enforcement, even when they do stupid shit, it's because they were trained to do it, they really think they're doing the right thing. But when it comes down to it, the average cop that sees somebody stealing from somebody else will intervene. Or see somebody draw a gun down on somebody else will intervene. Or see somebody laying on the side of the road injured will stop and help them. Even in a bad time. 
in all but the most extreme, outlandish Hollywood example, there will be some form of law enforcement, and as things rebuild, that law enforcement will become more prominent, and accountability will become more prominent. The tactical security, high-level tactical security mindset that we all need to develop is for the time that authorities basically say, you're on your own. In a big disaster, there's a tactical coordinator that runs everything, puts everything together, and develops a plan. And it's basically understood. The people inside that disaster area are on their own. If we have a complete plan, everybody signed off it, everybody's job is assigned. If it's a federal level thing, we need, we need the governor to ask for assistance. We need the president to okay. The federal emergency aid, FEMA coordinator has to come in, take a, I mean, You could be two days, three days, five days, seven days, 14 days, depends on the disaster and how widespread it is, completely on your own. And yes, we need that tactical preparation for that. But sooner or later, the people that are going to want to put it back together, both internal and external, are going to surface. And the mentality that I'll just take what I need, it's not going to work real well. Especially if other people saw you do it and you actually victimized them. They might not care that you took a TV out of a department store. But if you took food out of their kid's mouth, don't think that you're going to get away with it. I mean, you want reality. People say, you know, you're not real enough. Here's reality. You know, there, there's all this theory, but if we look at every disaster, we see a common thread of the peak, the severity, the duration without support, the rebuilding. We always see the same pattern. Why? Because it's how, remember we started out with this, what are humans? Social creatures, social animals, communal creatures that value communication, that value community, that value each other. See, the reality is people have a huge self, uh, self-preservation instinct. And they will do some horrible animalistic things to preserve themselves. But in general, if they feel relatively safe, they, their, their, their future is relatively secure for the next day even. I'm going to be okay for the next 24 hours at least. And my kid's going to be okay for the next 24 hours at least. And someone over there is in pain or suffering or being attacked. They try to help however they can. Now, some people have different levels of what they can help. You could be lying there bleeding to death. And some person might feel bad for you but doesn't know the first thing about medicine so they can't help you. Or somebody's shooting at you and the person has no gun and doesn't know anything about tactics so they can't help you. But they want to help you. They want to help you. And wherever they can, you'll see it happen. In the 90s, I think it was, it was either 80s or 90s, there was a huge earthquake in Los Angeles. And the double expressway, you know, they have one road on top of the other, collapsed. One sandwich down on top of the other. And there was barely enough room to crawl in some of those spaces. And random civilians, with no training at all, started pulling ladders off of service trucks and putting them up and crawling in there and finding people and pulling them out. People they didn't know. That's the basic human instinct. The human instinct is not as foul or immoral as we've been led to believe by the media, by government, and by sci-fi novels. The, the, the demon is there, but it's not the dominant characteristic, especially once any type of relative safety or hope is established within the heart of the individual. Once that takes place, once there's hope for tomorrow, then there is hope for assistance to others. And by being a positive force and building community, you make sure that hope is there from the very beginning versus something people have to find during the adversity. That's the real goal in sharing the concept of preparedness. Um, the next thing is, whatever you store will run out eventually. 
Anything that you store will run out eventually. And that means sooner or later, again, you're back to a situation where you need outside assistance, whether it's through commerce, whether it's through barter, whether it's through going out and hunting and gathering, whether it's through your own self-production. One way or another, you've got to surface from the hole in the ground. You know, and I don't think living in a hole is a great way to live unless there's no like nuclear radiation or something you're hiding from for a time. And you know how long you can do that even with all the supplies is still a, a, a psychological thing as much as a, a physiological thing. But sooner or later, you'll run out of things, and you'll have to grow things or harvest things or hunt things or buy things. Sooner or later, you'll have to be out and about. And when you're out and about... If you're not part of the existing community, if you've holed up for a week or two or three, and it is that kind of a long-term disaster scenario, and people have started to put together those individual posses and things like that, and you weren't part of all that, and now you show up because your 60 days worth of food turned out to be 30 days worth of food supplies, and now you need some stuff or your family needs some stuff, and you're kind of surfacing, well... Who the hell are you, and why didn't we see you for the last month, and how do we know we can trust you, and why weren't you part of the, the solution to begin with, and where do you live, and you're really from right over there, and where have you been, and we've had some stuff stolen, and you didn't you say you didn't do it, but we're not sure who did it. It might have been you. We know everybody else around here was accounted for. You see what I mean? This is how the human mind works. You're now an outsider in your own backyard because you didn't go through it with people. Think about it this way. Those of you that were in the military, If you were part of a unit that did anything of any significance, uh, especially if, let's say, you had a unit citation that you received, and then a month or two after it was over, you got some new people sent to your unit, and then in the first dress inspection where you wear your dress uniform, they're sitting there wearing, wearing that meritorious unit citation. You know damn well they weren't there when it happened. Doesn't it take them a while to stop being with you know, the Army? You call them a cherry? and actually be accepted into the fold. Isn't there a hazing, even without that citation? Just, you know, if you have a, a platoon or a group of anything, whether it's a fraternity or a, a military organization or a law enforcement organization or a school or a class or anything, and somebody comes in from the outside, isn't there a time it takes for that person to adjust, adapt to the group and to be accepted by the group and no longer be seen as an outsider? And sometimes it's it's almost to the point of, Whoever the last person to join is, is never fully a member of the group until what happens? A new outsider comes in. Right? Well, you're, you're, if you're not part of the solution in, in advance, if you're not part of the planning in advance, you're setting yourself up to be that outsider in your own backyard. Because even your neighbors that knew you, When you've disappeared, when it looked like your house was abandoned and you hold up and your your plan worked and eventually you realize you got to come out the door, why where have you been? You're not part of this, you're not part of the solution. You're not part of the group. You don't have any status, you don't have anybody's trust. Not a good place to be in a bad case scenario, is it? Um, the next one is And I think this is something that especially our 20 to 30-something, really in shape, I'm a mountain biker, backpacker, I was an army ranger, I can repel, I can pick locks, I can do this, I can do that. That attitude. And it's mostly men and it's mostly young men that are still full of t testosterone. You have more balls than brains. 
you're one injury or an illness away from being almost completely useless. You're one injury away from being almost completely useless. A car wreck, a broken ankle, a really bad case of the flu in a pandemic. I mean, see, especially that group doesn't want to accept their own mortality and their own limitations. There's a reason the Army wants to recruit 17 to 22-year-old males to do the fighting. When we're that age, guys, we're stupid. We're dumbasses. We'll do things at that age that we would never do in our 30s unless we remain stupid into our 30s, and some of us do it. Many of the people that are still doing it in their, especially their mid to late 30s, right, that are in the military, do you know why they're there? They don't actually think doing all this stuff's a great idea anymore. They have matured in that system to a point that they look down at the lower members of, of, of the, the branch of service that they're in, especially your senior NCOs, and they feel like somebody has to take care of those boys. And that's why they stay. They aren't really into doing this dumbass stuff anymore. That's why they want you. But what you learn real quick, if you've ever seriously injured yourself, is you can become essentially useless in a second. Your buddy that can cover you in a firefight, even if he's not dead, if he takes one in the liver and he's laying over there bleeding out, can't lay down cover fire for you anymore. The idea that I can run around the woods and just trap and hunt and be Cody Lundeen, right? And it's not even I'm going to rape you. I'm just going to go out and live in the wilderness and be that lone wolf out there. So, yeah, Jack, what about that? What if that's my plan? I'm just going to go out there, and I know you say everybody will do it, but they won't. And I can go out in really remote areas where the idiots will never get to, and there's plenty of stuff out there, and I can go do it right now and prove it, and great, and break an ankle. Or get bit by a rattlesnake. Or get a case of hypothermia because even though you were well prepared, you had an accident and you fell into water that you didn't even know it was there. Or get a serious laceration and then get it infected. This is something that, like, so it's not a guarantee that these things will happen, but th th that's the reality. That even the person that thinks that they are in the best shape of their lives, that they think that they're in the top 1% of physically fit, mentally fit, conditioned warrior athletes, one illness, One injury, essentially useless. That's reality. The other day, I guess it was about two months ago now, we were walking our dog, uh, and he took off, and the lady up the road from us had her cat out. And I knew he wouldn't hurt the cat. I knew he wouldn't hurt the cat. Um, but I didn't want to make like a bad relationship with the neighbor. I didn't want the cat freaking out, the lady freaking So I took off after him because he wasn't listening, which is unusual for him. And I did one of those things where you, you step on a rock and you twist your ankle to the side, and I mean I really threw it down. I was wearing loosely tied tennis shoes, worst scenario possible, and I wrenched my ankle. And it's been over two months, and there's still swelling there, and there's still pain there. I mean, I can function. It's not really that big a deal now. But when I think about it, I go, yeah, there's a little bit of an ache there. It's in the background. And if I push in certain spots on the tendon, I can still feel swelling, and that's two months. Well, where I was, I mean, it was like half a mile from the house. I ended up, at first, I, I ended up in the fetal position. I'll be honest. I'm enough of a man to admit it. It freaking hurt on the side of the road. I couldn't believe how bad it hurt. You know, and it's one of those things where you're feeling it going, okay, it doesn't feel broken. It doesn't feel like anything's sticking out of it. Okay, it's good. You know, and sprains sometimes hurt worse than breaks because nothing gives. And that's what this was. And then I, my wife came down to me after she got the dog and goes, uh, you're going to be okay? I said, I think you need to, I think you need to go get the truck. And I, I don't think I need to walk on this down the hill. So, but give me a minute. And then I got up and it hurt really bad. And I'm like, I'd rather walk than have you go down and get the truck. So I walked back home. 
But if you're in the middle of the wilderness alone when that happens, or even if you're with somebody, now you're now you're you're a drag bag to that person. It just isn't practical to believe that that is a way to increase your odds of survival. Is to believe that you're going to go it alone when one thing, one factor can change the entire reality. And then this is the most important one. In a real breakdown scenario, not the one you read about last night when you went to bed and you dreamed of fighting Red Dawn, not the one that you think about when you're out doing CQB drills with your buddies at the range, not the one that you think about when you go to front site and you train with that, not the one you thought about when you remembered what it was like when you were in a war zone, not the, not the one that you were in some way protected or isolated from. Even the guys that go overseas and fight that you know that your ultimate destiny, as long as you don't get shot, is to go home. And you know you got a lot of people that have your back in that scenario. In the real breakdown, where no one is coming for you to help you, there is no ETS to end it. There is no uh, do-over. There is no turn to the back of the book and see that it always ends in some kind of an upbeat fashion. There's none of that. There's just a disaster and suffering, and misery, and people doing without, and your own family hurting, and yourself hurting, you will need, want, and desire recovery as much as anyone else. You will want to put it back together. So if you're going to want to do something, maybe you should prepare to do it. I mean, why do we prepare to survive? Because we want to survive. Well, if you also know that you're going to want to fix things, you're going to want to rebuild, you're going to want to put it back together, then you need to be preparing to do that now, not after the fact. Preparing for rebuilding after the disaster is as stupid as not preparing for the disaster at all. Because both of them will become fundamental realities. Now, one may have more dire initial consequences, but both of them are going to be things that you're going to have to be accountable to yourself and your family and your community for. So I want to kind of end up with some basic prepper OPSEC. We call OPSEC in the military, it's a, an acronym, or like really an acronym, because an acronym would be like each letter means something. Like, uh, you know, in, in, in the U.S. Army Southern Command, we had a thing called STRAC, and it was like support, train, uh, you know, like that, right? And we changed it to stupid troops running around in circles, um, just because that's how military guys are. They're completely pessimistic on everything that command comes up with and then command has to prove it to them. Uh, so that, that's an example of an acronym. OPSEC is more of an abbreviation for operational security. And uh, here are my rules for basic OPSEC. This is how I deal with people that are actually immediately in my area, not somebody that might see my license plate on YouTube, idiots. I just did a YouTube video. I think I want to blurt out my license plate. Really? Do you go to the store Do you go to the grocery store? Do you go to work? Do you drive down the road? Do you park in parking lots? Do your neighbors walk by your house? Really? Did about 10,000 people a month see your license plate? Why do you care if it's in a video? Anyway, so instead of that kind of ridiculous crap, here's my basic common sense OPSEC rules. Number one, discuss basic preparedness, not how much you have. So when you're talking to your neighbors and all, talk about being prepared. And start out with talking about being prepared for a week. Right? Because when you're prepared for a week, you are not Walmart or Costco in their mind. You're somebody with a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of resources that might be willing to help them a little bit in a disaster. And that's exactly, precisely who you want to be. You don't want to be the guy that's no help at all. You don't want to be the guy that's known as the neighborhood turd or the neighborhood asshole. You don't want to be the guy that's, that's, that's stockpiled with stuff and doesn't care about anybody else. You don't want to be the guy that everybody thinks they can see as a source of things. You want to be the guy that's 
that's a little bit prepared and, and willing to help. Because then there's a certain level of expectation and a certain opportunity for leadership in your neighborhood unless somebody else is better qualified to fill that role. And by all means, if there's somebody in your neighborhood better prepared to accept the role of leadership, defer to them. And if there isn't, step up and do it. But so talk about your basic preparedness and talk about it from, hey, you know, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should have everybody should have each other's phone numbers. Maybe we should have the basics. You know, even if we don't do a neighborhood watch day to day, we should have a plan for a neighborhood watch. Maybe we should run a couple drills. Maybe we should see, you know, if we can get more people gardening, whatever it is, whatever works for you. But that's not stuff that says, hey, guess what? I have two years worth of food. That is stupid. That is, as Ron Hood used to call before he passed from us way too early in his life, the big mistake. Hey, yeah, I got, I got a year's worth of food in the basement. That's, that's dumb. That's what you don't do. But discussing basic preparedness, that's what you should be doing. And then the next thing is create relationships, not dependence. So the guy with the potatoes. If you take your neighbor a couple pounds of potatoes a week, every week, all year long, you create dependence. If you take them three or four or five pounds of potatoes once and say, I had some extra potatoes this year... Here. And they, when they tell you, man, those are great. You go, Dude, they're so easy to grow. Let me show you how. That's creating a relationship, not a dependent relationship. That's creating mutual support. That's creating other people putting systems into place so that when there is a disaster, there's more to draw from from, every, from everybody. Right? But telling people, yeah, not only do I garden, but I've got six months worth of stuff that I've canned and dehydrated from my garden. Again, that's going over to the, 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 the other side. There is an operational security concept. But the guy with a little garden over there is seen as the guy that might be able to help out but can't be the sole source of everything that I need. So if I want his continued support and help, I have to have a good relationship with him before, during, and after a disaster. That's who you want to be. Again, not the turd that kept everything to himself and not the dumbass that told people that you were infinitely supplied because even when you think you are, you're not. The next thing is... Encourage action, any positive action. Not here, don't tell people here's all the stuff that I do. So talk to, when you talk to people about basic preparedness and they say, well, I've been thinking about putting a garden, just run with that. Or I've been thinking about storing up some water, let me show you how to do that. Or, you know, yeah, I was watching TV and I saw this stuff and I thought maybe it would be a good idea to at least secure my finances a little better. I have some ideas on that. Run with their idea, not give them a list of things. Because if you say, do all of this, first you're going to overwhelm them and they're not going to be able to do it. Second, they're going to say, he must have done all that. And maybe you've only done half of it. It's all part of your eventual plan. And now you've created the magnet, right? Well, this guy's got everything. I'm going to him. Right? Where if you just kind of talk to him about the things that you're doing, the mentality is, well, he's kind of done that stuff too, so we're kind of equals there. So you want to be somebody's legitimate equal not the oppressor or not the one to be oppressed in these scenarios. And you do that through common relationships. Getting to know people now, forming relationships now, giving away food now is a way to create an affinity where people don't want to do you harm. You're not faceless and nameless guy that lives down the street that I noticed had a couple deliveries last week that looked like there might have been some good stuff in there. You're Joe or Tom or Sue or Mary who watches their kids who called them up when you saw suspicious activity in their backyard, let them know there was somebody parked there, and even if it turned out to be a friend of theirs, it just didn't look right, and they know that you've got their back. That's who you want to be. Next thing is, when you're pushing a string, stop. Right? There's an old saying, you can't push a string. You can pull a string, but you push a string, it just wads up and it doesn't go anywhere. And eventually your hand goes past the string, and now you're pulling it. So it's impossible to push a string. 
what the saying is really about is when you're trying to convince somebody of something or, or tell somebody about something. So when you say the first little bit, like, hey, uh, you know, we've been putting a garden in and stuff, and the guy goes, oh, yeah. And we go, you know, we just figured that, you know, with the cost of food and everything, it would be a good idea. And he goes, oh, I don't even worry about that. You just go, okay, done. You, you move on to other people. That is your neighborhood turn. Right, that's the guy, and see, that's why it's important to have these conversations. You've now identified, unless he's just having a bad day, try to talk to him again in the future. But stop that line of talk right there. You've identified the turd. That guy is the one that's going to be a problem. And let me tell you what you need to know about the guy that's going to be a problem. You need him identified before he gets an opportunity to be a problem. Because what's amazing is when you do end up in a disaster, everybody starts bunching together, and everybody knows who the turd is. Everybody knows who the problem is. And they turn to the turd and say, don't be a turd. Not at this point. You know, we were willing to tolerate you, but right now we all got to look out after each other. Either get involved with the solution or get out of here. The turd is, no is just neutered immediately. It's not as easy as people think it is. And the guy that's the obvious turd is much bigger of a man in his head than he is in his heart. And all it takes is one good check, and he's really in a psychological checkmate. This is human nature. Is it 100%? No. But again, we play the odds. I'm preparing for the 99% of disasters that we're likely to see. And if the 1% comes, I still think I'm better off. But I'm not going to put all of my effort into the 1% and ignore the 99% and end up with fire taking everything that I have. Or a regional disaster creating looting that my neighborhood's not ready to stand up to. I'm going to play the 99% odds because that's the smart odds. If I could go to Vegas... With a 99% win rate, trust me, we'd all be good because I'd buy everybody their own compound uh, within a year. That listens. I'd just be like, everybody that's been listening up to this point, Vegas is stupid. They gave you 99% odds. I'm going to suitcase some money. I'm going out there, getting a line. I'm buying compounds for everybody because we could do it then, right? So if there's 99 odds, 99% odds, we, we play those odds. The next thing is, see your priority this way. Family, neighborhood, and then city, town. Right, because some of us live in cities, some of us live more in a town environment. Um, your number one priority is yourself and your family, and it's really yourself. I didn't put it in the show notes that way because people won't understand it if I don't explain it. You are the most important element if you are the one taking action, because if you're gone, so people say, well, I'll die for my wife and my kids. My question is, will you live for them? Because as soon as you're dead, who's there to take care of them? So if it's taking a bullet for somebody, you well, I should take a bullet for my wife. Yeah, of course I would. Okay, so you took a bullet, you're dead. What do you think they're taking? A single shot? Right? So it's more about would you risk? Sure. But you got to try to assure your own survival so that someone, because no one will look after yours the way that you will. So see the priority as family and self. And immediately, once that priority is basically buttoned down, the next priority becomes your neighborhood, because if anything threatens your neighborhood, it threatens you. And then button down the neighborhood. And then look to the city and town, and is there anything you and your community can do? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Maybe it's not yet. Maybe it's we've got to sit in place, we've got to fortify this area, we've got to hold it together, and then when the opportunity arises, we can be part of the larger solution. Maybe it's we're really in great shape, this is a short-term disaster, people right over there are hungry, let's get everybody together and go help them. And when you start seeing it and prioritize it that way, being the lone wolf starts to lose every bit of appeal that it ever possibly could have had. And then the last one, is realize this, the worst case scenario, 
The worst case scenario you can think of. The one that you really think, man, this guy's wrong. I shouldn't be telling anybody. This is bad, 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 bad. People will know. People will come. It's going to be awful. Having a garden is going to make you a target. Talking to people is going to make you a target. Having your lights on is going to make you a target. Make your house look like it's a burned out hole. That's the only way to go or get a, right. In that scenario, existing as a human being on planet Earth makes you a target. The fact that you're there makes you a target. In that scenario, you're going to be a target anyway. You can be a target of one, you can be a target of four or five looters, or you can be a target as a well-defined, well-established community that has each other's back. Take your pick. I know which one I'll take. I'll always take the well-defined, well-organized community over the lone wolf scenario. I always want to be the first person that people turn to when there is a crisis. What do we do? I want to be able to establish leadership. I want to maintain leadership right up until the point where I see a better leader who I will defer to. And I will still continue to act as a leader in a, in a sub-leadership role. That's who I want to be. I don't want to be the guy out on my own. Guy out on your own gets killed. There's no more badass creature on planet Earth, in my opinion, uh, as far as one that walks on terrestrial Earth. Maybe in the ocean we can look at sharks, but on the, on the land side of things than the lion. The, a male lion is one of the most fierce, ferocious... I mean, there's a reason they call him the king of beasts. And they're usually banished from a pride as they start to get up to a point where they could challenge the pride male. And they go off on their own and Disney nonsense aside, usually they don't even go off on their own. Usually they go off with another male, a brother or a, a, a kind of a cousin, or eventually two males that are young enough not to try to dominate each other yet kind of pair up. And eventually they go back and challenge other pride males for the pride to become part of a pride. Even the king of beasts desires a community. And you're not as badass as a lion, folks. And neither am I. And neither one of us will ever be. And there's things that they can do. That You want to talk about an ultimate survivor? You're talking about an animal that can run down an animal. Another animal that's bigger and stronger than that. Lions can and do kill Cape Buffalo. That's a survivor. You and I are not lions. We can have the heart of a lion. And the heart of a lion is the one not just of someone that can go out and look after themselves, but someone that defends their pride, someone that defends their community, and someone that believes that that is their role, to protect and defend their community. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.